Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Neil Shorey, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Edge. I am really excited to continue in this sermon series that we're calling The Table. It's a series about how God connects with us and how he invites us to connect with each other at the table. So far, we've talked about how it's God's heart, it's his desire to be with us, to spend time with us. Not so that he can tell us all the things that we did wrong, but so that we can be in real relationship with the God who created and saved us. We've also talked about how throughout the Bible, um, significant things happen around tables. There's something, and I think we all know this, there's something holy that occurs when we just slow down and we eat a good meal. Um, There's something otherworldly that happens when we sit down and we rest and we have food and we have good drinks together. We open up and we talk about our lives and, and how things are really going and we get to encourage each other and we get to reflect on all that God has done in our lives and what he wants to do through our relationships. In the Shorey family, there is a long-standing practice that when we get together with our friends, the Lanzaras here at the edge, um, we almost every single time have taken communion together. Now, here's the thing. We don't do that um, because we have to. We do it because we get to, because we recognize that it is the Lord who brought us together. So we always want to make sure that we're inviting God into all the things that we do together as friends. Well, today we're going to focus on an idea that probably to some of us, it, it, it sounds a little bit outdated in 2021. And that idea is fellowship. Now, when some of you hear the word fellowship, you're probably automatically like taken back in your mind to an old church basement. And you're hanging out in your mind with people that are several generations older than you. And you're looking at probably a number of jellos with all these nondescript ingredients and potentially casseroles. Now, if you started going to church in the early 2000s, more like I did, you're probably imagining a little hallway that's, that's kind of uh, more current, that has uh, pretty decent coffee and some good cookies, and you're enjoying those between services. Now, here's the thing. Those aren't bad things at all, but those ideas are really not even close to what fellowship in the Bible is supposed to look like. So what is fellowship and why is it so important according to scripture? So in the New Testament, um, the Greek word for the concept of fellowship is koinonia. It appears 19 times in the New Testament and I love what it means. It's a group of people with a common interest or purpose coming together to share their burdens and their joys. Um, There are several other words in the New Testament that um, are translated from koinonia. Um, They are sharing, participation, and contribution. I love this because those words speak to this Christianity that we ascribe to. It, it, It shows that it's a team sport, that we actually need each other. And that every single person, not just pastors or leaders or Bible study um, experts or theologians, but every single person has something to bring to the table. I want to say a couple of things before uh, we uh, get into some of the more specific thoughts around this concept of fellowship. 
And first of all, I just want to say that aren't these ideas of fellowship so different from how many of us treat the idea of church and our relationships? So many of us just go to church. Like, don't you say that? Like, hey, we're going to church on Sunday or we're going to watch church on Zoom in 2020 and in 2021. We say these things, but the truth is in the Bible, um, the word for church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. And it literally has nothing to do with location. It's all about a people, a people that are gathered together by God to accomplish God's will on earth together, which is what? It's to reconcile all people to himself. So the second thing that I want to point out is really the elephant in the room that has come to the forefront of our lives in 2020 and 2021. And it's this, that we live in such divided times that we are often hurting ourselves and we're complicating our fellowship, we're complicating our relationships with each other by making secondary issues primary issues. Now here's the thing, no matter what the issue is, if we are placing the issue above our identity as followers of Jesus, then we are complicating our relationships with other Christians. And that goes for both sides of the political aisle here in the U.S., and it goes for both sides of things like the argument about vaccines or wearing a mask. Here's the thing. That doesn't mean at all that we should just be uniformly quiet and we should wait for someone to tell us how to think um, as if we had a, a frontal lobotomy. Um, here's the thing. Opinions are essential to us being individuals, but in our opinions, we must focus on loving people as Jesus loves us. And what that means is pretty simple, that no opinion should supersede the love that we have for each other. The Lord himself, 2,000 years ago, said that it's our love for each other that will demonstrate to the world that we are his. I love the way the New Living Translation says it in John chapter 13, verse 35. It says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So love is the differentiator. It is love that draws people into this new, this new community, this new fellowship. So what I'd like to do for the rest of today is to look at three practical applications of this idea of fellowship taken straight from the Bible. The first idea that I see in scripture uh, when I think of fellowship is that the Lord invites us to serve each other at the table. The Lord invites us to serve each other at the table. Now, you're probably thinking that this must have to be about food, and it could be. Um, the, the origination of the first deacons, um, deacon just meaning servant, it happened in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts when some of one group of Jews complained that their widows were being overlooked when there was this daily distribution of food. So there was a great need, and some people felt like they were being left out. So the apostles chose a number of people to oversee. In other words, they chose people to be focused on taking care of the physical needs of the people um, at the distribution of food. That's where we get the term deacon. It's servant. Um, but the reality is that far more things happen at tables um, than just eating. When Jesus was in the middle of the final Passover meal, we talked about that recently, 
Um, we're told that he did something that would have been considered very strange for him culturally, even 2,000 years ago. John chapter 13, verses 2 through 14. It says, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and right, rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now here's the thing. This was a groundbreaking um, culture barrier, like smashing kind of teaching in 33 AD. And it remains so for us. Because the overall gist of the story is that our purpose is never to, to garner authority so that we're above others. But here's what's really important. We are supposed to go lower and see that there is nothing that is too small for us to do for others. Whether it's the pastor, it's the elders, it's the deacons, it's a Bible study leader, or if it's the person who just comes uh, once a week. There is nothing that is too small for any leader to do. That is what makes Christianity different. There's nothing too small for us to do. And in Jesus' time, it was customary for hosts to have servants to wash feet of their guests as they came into their house before they had dinner. And it wasn't symbolic like a foot washing like what you might see today. It was necessary because of what the times were like. People walked everywhere. And they didn't walk behind like zero emission Teslas. They actually walked behind animals that left stuff all over the road. So when you walked into someone's house, there's a good chance that your feet were really, really dirty, really smelly. So get this. In the most stressful time in Jesus' entire life, he got down on the ground and he washed his disciples' feet. And then he said, and this is what you are supposed to do for each other. Wow, that's sacrificial. That's not symbolic. That's a big deal. But in order to do this, we have to make a choice to participate with people. We have to be willing to get into the messy parts of their lives. So maybe we need to stop clout chasing and get low regardless of what others think about it because there is nothing that is too... Um, there's nothing that makes us important as individuals. As a matter of fact, it is because we are connected to the Most High that we can confidently step down and serve the least of these. Service is what is so paradoxical in this new kind of kingdom. 
get this, it's the idea that royalty would abandon its crown and it would pick up a towel. At this table, we are called to serve and also to be served, which honestly, if we're really uh, being honest about it, it's harder for some of us than to just serve. It's very challenging and humbling to be served. So at the table, fellowship is experienced through service, but I also find that it is found through helping each other carry specific burdens. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's evident to me that the Apostle Paul was teaching just another aspect of what it looks like to walk together through life's hardships with each other. And it's this picture of participating in something that's bigger than just your own concerns, but like you have eyes for other people and you see when they're having trouble making it through life. So you enter into that mess with them because of the unity that we have in knowing Christ. But have you ever found yourself in a place where you are serving and serving and serving? Maybe you heard sermons about service and you're like, okay, I've got to serve more. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what the pastor's saying to do. But you find that your attitude is like almost anything but joyful and loving. Let's be real. There are times when you're serving and serving and you're doing and you're going and you're, you're getting after it all. And the last thing that you want to do is try to love people. You're just serving and serving and serving, but you've sort of like left out the love. There is always a potential for perversion of every good thing that God has, has for us and has called us to do. So we're going to look at the context of that passage in Galatians chapter 6 so that we don't turn this gift of fellowship that God has for us into something that's, that's twisted and, and honestly ugly. Sometimes when you're serving nonstop, you tend to think that um, you're kind of important, like people need you to do what you do, or you just feel good about it. But the reality is, it could be that you've gotten tripped up by your own ego. I know that I've done that. I remember my counseling supervisor, um, when I was in seminary, he actually uh, pulled me aside one day, and we had this, like, this debriefing that we would do, and and Bill had this way of looking at me and giving no feedback, but he just, it was like he could like look through me, made me so uncomfortable. But he asked me a question that to this day shapes my ministry. He said, Neil, why do you think you have to save everyone? And he just stared at me. Now, here's the thing. I never had a conscious thought that I had to save everybody. I know all the right theological answers, and I did then too. I knew I don't have, I, like, I'm not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. But if I'm being honest, my actions betrayed me, and it was burning me out rapidly. And suddenly I was filled with depression and anxiety. My supervisor saw what I didn't yet see. He saw that I was trying to pick up something that was between God and the people that I was serving. So it was good for me to help them with their carry-ons. Let's think about airplane travel. He wanted me to help, God wanted me to help people with their carry-ons, but it wasn't for me to try to also carry their 50-pound checked bags. Does that speak to you today? Are you trying to pick up stuff for people that actually they're, it, they're the ones who need to like wrestle with God a little bit and, and carry for themselves. The Apostle Paul had um, similar warnings um, in the passage around this idea of carrying burdens because 
in the very first verse, so Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul writes that we should watch, it says, watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. So the question we should probably ask is, tempted to do what? So in the context of helping people and carrying burdens, we can, we can sort of figure out that we're tempted when we jump in and we try to do too much to think that we're more important than we are. And suddenly we start taking pride in doing something that was never for us to do in the first place. Have you ever seen someone at work um, or like maybe in a ministry setting, maybe it was at work, almost, feel, almost like they never wanted to take a vacation because they felt they got a sense of significance from going and going and going. Or maybe they just uh, took on this busyness of ministry because it's almost as if they thought that like, God's will on earth wouldn't happen unless they just ran hard 24-7, 365. There has to be a remedy for this. Well, verse 5 is the answer, and it says, each one should carry their own load. Okay, so it says, we need to walk with people and carry their burdens, but each one needs to carry their own load. So we have to understand that a burden is not the whole load. A burden is the carry-on. The load is the luggage that each person needs to carry for themselves. So make sure that as you are seeking to love people, that you aren't trying to lift something that was never meant to be lifted by you in the first place. Because what happens is, ultimately we enable people. And when we enable people, it's sort of driven by our own need. It's, it's our own pride, not by the love of God that flows into this fellowship that we're talking about. So we can experience fellowship through serving others and being served, and we can experience fellowship by helping each other, by carrying each other's burdens. We also experience fellowship through the restoration of relationships that happens at the table. Now this one is a little bit of a challenge, right? I think it's one of the most beautifully difficult aspects of the Christian life. Like, we, we know that it says that you are called to live at peace with all people as much as it's up to you. In other words, if you've done something wrong, make it right. But you can't make someone else want to make their side of it right. Now, uh, we also know that that can be abused in terrible ways when people are manipulating others or you're manipulating others for your own purposes. But we know that the heart of God is to restore us to him and also to each other. So that's going to be messy because humans are messy. Everything about us is flawed. Everything, our motives, our character, and, and everything else in between. But the most amazing things can happen when people check their egos at the door and they come to the table seeking to be reconciled to each other. I want you to think for a minute about the Apostle Peter. Can you imagine being him? Um, I definitely can. Um, and I, I probably a little more than I'd like to admit. Um, when I was a new uh, Christian in the, the end of my college experience, I was a lot like Peter. Um, what I mean by that is I was really passionate about my faith and I shared it often. I was really fiery about it, like excited, not like not, not telling everyone they're going to hell, but I was excited about it, but I also didn't have a whole lot of wisdom. I'm sure that I would have been just like Peter. 
um, when Jesus said right after the Last Supper that all of his followers were going to abandon him, he, he literally said it to all of them. And Peter jumped in and he goes, well, maybe they will, but I'm not going to. You've got the wrong guy. Like, I'm way stronger than that. And, and by the way, uh, let, me, let me take it up a notch that if I have to die with you, then I'm going to do that. That was kind of me as, as an early Christian. Jesus, of course, corrected him, and he said, Peter, um, not only are you going to deny me, but you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows twice. So Peter is like literally the guy who is making the boldest claims about his allegiance to Jesus, yet really soon he's about to win first place in the how many times can I deny Jesus in one night contest. And I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. So here's the thing. Peter did just that. Just what Jesus said he was going to do, he did. He denied Jesus twice um, to a young girl who saw, he saw, she saw Peter and she said they were all hanging out around this fire. And she recognized Peter as someone who'd been with Jesus. And she asked him, hey, you know Jesus, you were with him earlier. And Peter twice denied it. And then just a few minutes later, we, we see this picture of more people in the crowd are coming in closer to look at Peter, and they, they, they seem to recognize him because of his accent, and they seem to remember that he had actually been with Jesus, and he denied it again. Can you imagine the sense of shame and embarrassment? Can you imagine how small Peter must have felt when he realized that what Jesus said about him was true? and that he wasn't strong like he thought he was, that he was excited to be? In Mark chapter 14, verse 72, it says that Peter basically lost it, and he broke down and wept. That wasn't the end of the story, though. Fast forward uh, to a different gospel. In John chapter 21, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and then he had this really um, intimate personal moment with the man forever known as Doubting Thomas, and Jesus didn't shame him for his doubt. He actually showed him what he needed to believe. And then the next scene we have, we have Jesus. He was sitting by the sea, observing his disciples from about 100 yards away. They went back to fishing, and they weren't having any, any success. And Jesus was cooking fish and, and baking bread over some hot coals um, from a fire that he'd made. So at a distance, the disciples couldn't tell who he was, and he kind of yelled out, out to them, probably like fishermen would have at the time, and, and he said, hey, have you caught anything yet? And they said, no. And he goes, hey, drop your net on the other side of the boat. And they did it, and they had this miraculous catch of fish, 153 fish. And Jesus then said, hey, come on in. I made some breakfast for you guys. So they ate together. And then Jesus didn't just leave it at eating. He went into that uncomfortable spot that we rarely want to do with broken or strained relationships. But Jesus never minimizes hurt or pain or betrayal. He gets to the heart of it. And we can read that in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. 
The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus does not ignore the issues that break our fellowship with him. And he doesn't want us to ignore issues that break our fellowship with others. But he goes into that place and he offers a new start. And not only does he do that, I have to point this out. He did it in such an utterly brilliant and psychologically advanced way. Because the truth is, when we have bad experiences in life, we tend to wall ourselves off from experiencing those same kinds of moments again. We make these associations, like if something happened on, on one road, we, next time we want to avoid that road because we automatically make an association with something that happened with a location or a feeling. So we try to avoid that location or avoid that feeling. Peter denied Jesus three times around a fire. Okay, every detail in the Bible matters, okay? So it is no accident that, that Jesus met him in the place that probably caused him a significant amount of distress to show him that he makes all things new. Jesus had this conversation with Peter around a fire so that he could offer him restoration that met him at each of the points that he had denied Jesus that's why, that's why scholars believe that's why he said this three times because he knew that Peter had denied him three times and he wanted to restore him in each of those moments. And that's what God does. He restores and he calls us to be people who seek to follow in his steps. Don't you love that detail? To experience these kinds of fellowship, you can't will them to occur. You can't pretend it's there when it's not. You have to start by having a relationship with your maker. And that's only done by turning to Jesus and turning away from your sin. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 tells us exactly how to do it by the one who had denied Jesus three times. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is only that spirit, the spirit of God who can overcome all of the things that make us different, that can overcome all of the things that divide us, that can overcome all of the walls that we build that, that, that destroy fellowship. Here's why the spirit is all the difference. The Holy Spirit comes and he connects us with the eternal and that creates a brand new kind of fellowship. Before we close with worship, we love to leave you with a number of questions for you to consider in your house churches or wherever you gather with people throughout the week. First question is this, what is your main takeaway from the message? The second question is, what aspect of fellowship that we talked about today is the most life-giving to you? And why is that? And the last question is, is there anything about this message that makes you uncomfortable? And if you are comfortable, share what that is. God bless you. We'll see you next week.